0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to cover a big disaster that's actually three disasters in one. The Deepwater Horizon Explosion Sinking Oil Spill. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that our normal episodes are between 30 minutes and an hour and 15-ish minutes long. This is not going to be that. This is probably going to be two-plus hours. So, somewhere in the middle, I'm going to put some music in that's a good place for you guys to take a break and pause it if you need to. I can't promise it'll be exactly in the middle, but it's. I've made a note in my notes as to where to take a break so that you guys can take a break from listening to this Absolute debacle of a disaster. So, without further ado, let's get into this. First, we need to talk about the background of deep water drilling and the actual Deep Water Horizon drilling rig itself. Now, the history of oil drilling is long, complicated, and well, messy. Obviously, we need to start at the beginning, 347 CE, in China, where they drilled into the ground to bring up petroleum to boil off water to get salt out of salt water. And then we fast forward a long time and get to what is debated to be the first modern oil well in the town of La Brea in Trinidad by the American Merrimack Company in 1857. From that point on, oil drilling exploded, both literally and figuratively. Literally, well, we will get to that in a bit, but figuratively, oil drilling went everywhere all over the world. By 1910, companies were drilling for oil all over the world, literally, but there was one thing that was consistent. Most of the drilling was entirely on land. Companies were doing exploratory drilling wherever they could get to, but it was almost entirely on dry land. Now, I say almost entirely because there was some offshore drilling, but not in the same sense we think of it today. There were oil rigs built over water connected by piers to the shore, so they were literally just right off the shore. You could walk to the rigs and never need a boat. It was basically on-land drilling. It was the exact same idea. It was just off the shore. like You could literally walk to it. That is, until 1937, when the first true offshore drilling rig was built by Pure Oil and Superior Oil companies and actually drilled a hole underwater. It wasn't anything spectacular, less than a mile from the coastline of, I'm very sorry, Louisiana, Calcaso Parish near Cameron, Louisiana. It was only 14 feet deep water, but it was not connected to land at all, and they did it. Basically, they built a wooden platform, drove some wooden pilings into the sand, and put an on-land oil rig on top of the wooden platform. And boom, you have offshore drilling. It couldn't move. It was barely more than just drilling on land but they did it. That first well went down 9,400 feet underground. Eventually, the area they were drilling in would produce 4 million barrels of oil, after getting swept away by a hurricane, of course, because disasters come up everywhere in this story. Anyway, this clearly wasn't a permanent solution. They wanted mobility for their oil rigs and to be able to go further out into the Gulf of Mexico, because who knows what kind of oil is sitting out there underneath all that water, And obviously, we need to liberate it from the ocean. Thankfully, they decided they weren't going to use bombs to liberate it from the ocean. But they weren't there yet. First, they had to figure out how to get them even more mobile. So they started on inland waterways, because it's much easier to do testing on inland waterways that are much more stable and less subject to wind and storms and all that kind of stuff. Basically, what they did was they got barges, put a drill on the barge, then... Sank the barge down low enough that they could drill the hole into the water, into the ground underneath where the water was, and then when they were done, they refloated the barge, moved it out of the way, built wooden platforms over the well so they could maintain the well and keep the oil flowing, and then moved the barge on to the next place. Honestly, it's a pretty good idea if you think about it. They just built the barge big enough so that it would still be partially above water and then purposely sank it while still keeping the inside of the barge dry. It's a really smart idea. Now, obviously they couldn't do that in the ocean, because the ocean is, you know, thousands of feet deep, and they can't just go around sinking things all willy-nilly in the ocean. I mean, they can, but it would be extremely costly and annoying and completely and utterly impractical. But they hadn't given up on the whole fixed platform thing, partially because they didn't have the technology yet. So in 1947, the first oil well that was out of sight of land was built. It was a fixed platform on which the rig was set, but everything else was on a supply barge. So the actual drill itself was on a fixed platform, but literally all of the other supplies were on a boat. It was significantly cheaper to build the platform because it was literally just the rig, but this one was only in about 20 feet of water. It was still a permanent structure, they would need to get more mobile to go deeper and farther out. Not just because there was oil there, but because drilling on land was becoming overcrowded. World War II had just ended, and people were re-entering the workforce. But there was another thing that was absolutely galvanizing the oil industry. The day after the Japanese surrender on World War II, so August 15, 1945, the U.S. lifted rations on gasoline which then led to an absolute mad dash to buy cars for the average American, which obviously meant more oil was needed because more gasoline was being consumed and more oil was going into cars. Land-based drilling was never going to remain sustainable for the rapidly growing oil industry and the rapidly growing car industry. They needed more space. So, they looked out over the ocean. But if you've followed along so far, you have to understand something. All of the stuff that we have talked about so far were exploratory drills. They weren't guaranteed to hit oil. So if you're going out into the ocean to drill for oil and you don't find anything, you don't want to have spent all that time setting up what is a permanent drilling platform only to just have to abandon it or try and demolish it. That's a whole lot of wasted cost. In both time and money, that is a huge wasted cost that you can't recover. They wanted their drilling rigs to have the ability to be mobile and move around, especially in the ocean. One big attempt at this was in 1954 when the Offshore Drilling and Exploration Company, really creative name, used a ship that they could rest on the bottom of 30 feet of water, drill, then build a platform to continue pumping out oil, or move to the next one. It worked basically the same way as the barges inland just in the ocean and slightly deeper. It worked, but had obvious limitations of no deeper than 30 feet. This gave them more space, they could go further out of the gulf, but not much more, and they definitely wanted more. These were all, obviously, just on-land oil wells made to essentially eliminate the water as a factor. The next attempt at offshore drilling was called a jack-up rig. Basically the same as before, but instead of sinking the barge down to the seafloor, these had built-in legs which were lowered to the seafloor, and then the boat was lifted into the air above the water level. This kept them safe from rising sea levels for high tides and whatnot, and any outside forces only impacted the legs and not the actual boat itself. This worked sometimes, but they would also occasionally capsize and flip over, which is, you know, a major problem. Former President George H.W. Bush's oil company was actually one of the first companies to use these jackup rigs with success. Eventually, these types of rigs would reach depths of about 300 or so feet after starting between the 50 to 100 feet depth in the early 50s. And now we're starting to get somewhere. But once you get several miles out into the ocean, you're going to start running into depths of well over thousand feet. And there was some consensus that consensus thinking that there were vast reserves of oil under these deeper parts of the ocean. But there was just no possible way to drill to those reserves by resting the rig on the bottom of the ocean or by trying to stick legs down there and jack it up in the air. It's just too far. So they needed to come up with a way to keep the rig floating on the surface of the water but also stable and minimize side to side and up and down movement. They've got to keep themselves in the same spot over the hole, otherwise they'll either just float away from where they're trying to drill, or they'll seriously damage their drilling equipment. And that's when we have the first semi-submersible rig appear on the scene, the Blue Water One. Shell Oil realized at the time that if they wanted to be successful and make money, they were going to have to get creative. Most of the land areas had been gobbled up by other oil companies, and many of the more shallow offshore had been snatched up already. They had to get creative to get further out into the ocean to look for oil. And that's where they came up with the idea for Blue Water 1. You see, Blue Water 1 was already built. It was a submersible drill, meaning that it sank to the bottom and then drilled, that would sit on the bottom in shallow water and drill for oil. It sat on essentially four floating Coke bottles. That is the best way I can describe them. It is a square platform with four giant buoys on the ends that look exactly like Coke bottles. So when it was a submersible, they would fill them all the way up and sink them to the bottom. But they figured out that if you only filled them partway, then they could sit below the water level and the rig would barely move. All they needed was eight anchors to hold it in place on the bottom of the ocean. They called it a submersible rig, because it was only partially submerged. But it wasn't just the rig that was a problem. They also needed to figure out how to establish a wellhead since they very well couldn't send divers down there to do it. So they did it via remote control. And it worked. In 1962, Shell drilled a hole at 297 feet, which was the record at the time. And they figured they could go even deeper than that. But then Shell ran into a problem. They put in bids for deepwater drilling locations to purchase from the federal government because obviously they could drill there now. But they were the only ones to put in bids on those locations. So the government said no. That's because in order to actively sell those locations from the federal government, there had to be multiple bidders on the location. Otherwise, it was, it was going to be rejected. So Shell did what the, they had to do. They put on a school for all the other oil companies those other companies paid a hundred thousand dollars to attend, which is just shy of a million dollars today so that they could actually get some competition. Like obviously they weren't really giving up much. they still owned all the patents and they had you know actually done the thing. but they still came out with more money and they could actually start doing the deep water drilling and exploring they wanted to because other teams other companies had the knowledge so then they would also build bid on those locations so they could you know buy them. It was a win-win for Shell. Like, they didn't give this technology up for nothing. They absolutely only did this in order to make themselves more money. I want to make sure that is clear. Many places and references and sources breathlessly describe this as a selfless act from Shell to bring the industry forward. It was not. It was entirely self-indulgent and to make themselves richer because otherwise, they had developed all this technology for no reason. They literally charged everyone who went a million dollars, They even charged the government a million dollars to teach them this. It was not out of the goodness of their hearts. They knew that no one else could do it anytime soon because none of them had the technology and they had all the patents for it so they could get other people to bid on it because they now had this knowledge of, oh, hey, maybe in the future we can do this. But Shell absolutely made out like a bandit on this and just got money from everyone at every location. But anyway... After that, offshore drilling went on a high-speed chase to its inevitable crash. They drilled deeper and deeper wells in more and more places with less and less oversight, which obviously, if you've been paying attention to this podcast, was going to end poorly if you've listened to literally any other episodes of this podcast. There were some regulations put into place by the federal government which were promptly ignored or watered down to, yeah, we will have the safety equipment nearby somewhere, but we're not going to test it or train with it or really even know exactly where it is, and we will totally follow all the procedures that you said we need to and definitely not cut corners at all, ever. Right. So then, in 1969, the very predictable ending happened, and they cut corners causing what at the time was the largest oil spill in American history— the Santa Barbara oil spill off the coast of California. On January 28th, 1969, drilling of a well on the rig A-21 suffered a blowout. They had reached the bottom of the depth they were attempting to drill to and were in the process of evaluating the well for how well it would do. But there was a problem. You see, in these underwater wells, they are required to have casing inserted to help prevent oil escaping and drilling fluids escaping into the walls of the hole. And caving the walls in right so there's conductor casing which is at the top of the hole there to prevent drilling fluid and all that from causing the surface of the hole to begin to erode away and cause problems then the next is surface casing which is there to prevent the oil and natural gas from mixing up into the water and the rock around the hole and also to anchor any blowout protection they might have on the rig and then also to support the casings further down the hole Now, for the well that A-21 was drilling, they were required to have 300 feet of the top conductor casing and 870 feet of the next level of casing. They applied for a waiver for the 870 feet of surface casing and were approved, and then were also told they only needed 238 feet of conductor casing. As they were finishing up, a volcano of oil, natural gas, and mud erupted from the well. They tried to place a cap on the well, but the pressure was too great. So they got a whole bunch of pipes and then they got two massive blocks and smashed the top of the well closed. Case closed, right? Wrong. So, you remember how I said they applied for a waiver for the 870 feet of surface casing? That's so they didn't have to use it. They decided that they didn't actually need that. And it turns out they uh, absolutely did need it. Because the oil and natural gas then began to seep up through fissures in the ocean floor and out into the ocean. You see, when all that mud and oil and natural gas was rocketing out of that well, that's because it was under immense pressure, which was fine when it was down in the ground, but now it's not down in the ground, so when they slammed those pipes together to seal off the blowout, the pressure had to go somewhere. That somewhere just happened to be between the seabed floor and out into the ocean. Over the following month, thousands upon thousands of gallons of oil bubbled up to the surface, and spread in a giant oil slick that grew to be about 75 miles in size. In total, it's estimated that about 3 million gallons of oil were spilled off the coast of Santa Barbara that January and February 1969. It coated the Santa Barbara beaches in black oil and killed thousands upon thousands of birds and marine wildlife. The Santa Barbara oil spill is what led to the creation of Earth Day and the Environmental Policy Act and a whole bunch of new laws and regulations and oversight of offshore drilling. What followed was a trial and error period for deep water drilling as oil demand rocketed, then fell, then rocketed again, and then fell again. All the major oil companies continued to develop and expand into deep water and ultra-deep water drilling, which is basically just deep water drilling just in deeper water. So deep water drilling is 1,000 feet plus. Ultra deep water drilling is 5,000 feet plus, and that's under the water, not up into the ground. And the whole time, they're making bigger and bigger discoveries of oil deposits deeper and deeper into the earth and under the Gulf of Mexico. There were, of course, setbacks. Hurricane Rita, which we did an episode on, did a fair number to oil rigs out in the ocean. Hurricane Dennis in 2005 actually showed that a valve in the system keeping one of the semi-submersible rigs afloat was installed backwards, and BP, who we will talk about at length in a minute, returned to find it listing significantly. But hey, they were able to fix that, and fix a whole bunch of welds they'd done wrong, and get it back into production. The ultra-deepwater drilling was generally done with the semi-submersible rigs and that's pretty much where it stood at the time of the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010. But we have more background to do. I know, it's a lot. But we needed all that. And now we need to know about the companies running Deepwater Horizon because it's important to know the full story and the full situation of what we're going to go into. So, Deepwater Horizon was being run by a company by the name of Transocean on behalf of BP, BP, or, as some people still know it, even though they don't go by it officially, British Petroleum. So let's first get into the history of BP. BP started out from one man in a group of, shocker, British geologists in Persia looking for oil. That man's name was William Knox Darcy. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was then incorporated in 1909. That's the original name. Then, in 1914, at the insistence of Winston Churchill the British government acquired a controlling interest in the company. From then on, the company made pretty decent money. In 1935, it was renamed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company because Tehran changed the name of the country from Persia to Iran, but it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Conditions working for the AIOC were absolutely terrible. That's Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, it's just significantly easier to say AIOC. But anyway... People were subjected to extreme temperatures and lived in housing conditions that were uh, terrible, for lack of a better term. It was straight up just awful. People regularly died. They lived in absolute squalor. Borderline, just, not even borderline, just the worst conditions you can imagine. And then we get to the big moment. Well, not the big moment this episode is about, but the other big moment in BP history. Operation Ajax, Operation Boot, depending on if you're in the U.S. or the U.K. You see, Prime Minister Mohammad Massadeh wanted to audit the AIOC to make sure that they had paid what Iran wanted as equal share for drilling in Iran. The AIOC refused to cooperate with that because they very clearly did not want to share money. So, the Iranian government voted to nationalize all oil industry in the country in 1951. This then led to the British government, remember, owns a controlling stake in the AIOC, started a worldwide boycott of all Iranian oil. That was openly, like they openly started a boycott of all Iranian oil to bring them back to the negotiating table so that they wouldn't have to pay this money and they wouldn't get audited. Secretly, though, they began to orchestrate a coup against the Prime Minister and Iranian government in cahoots with the U.S. government, which they then put forth. On August 15, 1953, the coup began and immediately failed. The Shah of Iran fled to Iraq, then off to Italy, and the general, who was supposed to assume the role of Prime Minister, went into hiding. The CIA called off the coup attempt in a telegram to the CIA station in Iran saying this view on basis evidence available to it is that operation had been tried and failed and we should not participate in any operation against Masade, which could be traced back to U.S. and further compromise future relations with him, which may become only course of action left open to U.S. In view foregoing and in absence strong contrary recommendations from you and Ambassador Henderson, operations against Masade should be discontinued. Ambassador Henderson was Lloyd W. Henderson, who was the U.S. ambassador to Iran at the time. That telegram was definitely received by the CIA operatives in Iran and by Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Yes, grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, the president. And Kermit Roosevelt Jr. proceeded to ignore it and start a second coup. And yes, this one worked. And then the AIOC immediately tried to get their oil fields back and did not. Because the nationalization was too popular, so they ended up sharing 50-50 profits with Iran anyway, which is explicitly what they said they weren't going to do before the coup. So, basically to sum that up, they tried to do a coup, failed. The CIA told them to stop. The CIA in Iran did it anyway. That one succeeded. They put in a new regime that was loyal, for lack of a better word, to the AIOC. But, the nationalization of the oil was already so popular in Iran that they literally couldn't change it, so they instead agreed to the original proposal before the coup. Literally just caused all of these problems to achieve exactly nothing. Then, in 1954, the AIOC changed their name to BP, or British Petroleum. Most likely to get away from the stigma the old name had, and because the old name gave off shades of imperialism, which they were very trying really hard to get rid of. Now, I want to just take a moment to point out something fascinating and just a great example of pure propaganda. If you look at BP's website, like their current website, they have their own history of BP portion of the website, and it basically lays out everything from the beginning right up until today. None of what I just told you appears on there. Absolutely none of it. The boycott appears, but it makes no mention of the coup, or the second coup, or the actual overthrow, or any of that. It just says that there was a boycott when they decided to nationalize the oil, the Iranian economy was in ruins, and that mobs in the street demanded the Prime Minister's resignation. Which is technically true. If you strip away all of the bribing and scheming and, you know, complete context surrounding what happened there. And then it continues on saying, when the parties returned to the table, they hashed out a new arrangement. Completely and utterly ignoring the fact that one side had been forcibly changed by their side of the table. You know, because... Putting your own person on the other side of the table makes your negotiations much easier, even though they achieved absolutely nothing. It's a fantastic example of propaganda. The BP website doesn't explain why they changed their name to BP, but we know why. Anyway, moving on from that, the next incident we need to stop at is the SS Tory Canyon. In an effort to save time, the captain of the SS Torrey Canyon attempted to take a shortcut and ran the ship aground on a reef west of the UK. And that's when the cargo of 110,000 tons of oil began to leak out. Realizing they needed to do something with their now-leaking cargo ship, BP, a.k.a. the British government, sent out several planes from the Royal Air Force to blow up the ship and sink it 10 days after the leak had already started. They dropped 41 bombs on the ship, ultimately hitting with 23 of them. They also used napalm and kerosene dropped from planes to burn off the oil. Eventually, the ship sank, but the oil spill spread all over the area and killed thousands of birds and marine life. You'll start to see a theme here. In 1987, the British government sold off their remaining shares and no longer held a stake in the company. Now, we're going to fast forward a bit more. Just know that the 80s and 90s BP did all right. Not spectacular, not terrible, just kind of existed. That brings us to 2005. You see, in 1999, BP purchased the oil company, Emoco. With that purchase, they acquired a refinery in Texas City. Now, not to give too much away, because I fully intend on doing an episode on this specific disaster in the future, let's just say that the refinery was built in 1934 and then was only occasionally updated or fixed from there. And you guys know what that means. An explosion occurred that killed 15 workers and injured a whole bunch more on March 23, 2005. In the aftermath, OSHA would level more than 300 safety violations at the company and fine them $21 million. A group hired to examine the safety conditions at the plant before the explosion said, and this is a direct quote, We have never seen a site where the notion I could die today was so real. That is how bad it was. And then, three months after this, BP had one of their semi-submersibles nearly capsized during a hurricane. Not one we talked about earlier, during Hurricane Dennis. Uh, But we're not done yet. Literally a year later, almost to the day, BP had yet another major disaster when oil spilled down Alaska's North Slope province in the Prudhoe Bay oil field. 267,000 gallons of oil spilled out of a hole in some corroded piping. And then in 2009, OSHA went back to Texas City, yes, the same exact refinery, and found 700 more safety violations and imposed a fine of $87.4 million. Basically... BP has a long and storied history of doing anything and everything they can to cut corners, skimp on safety, and save whatever money they can, no matter who or what it hurts. And that brings us up to 2010, when all of that finally came back to bite them in the rear end. So with all that, we are now caught up on a crash course in deep water and ultra-deep water drilling and the history of BP. BP we're finally at the point of the actual disaster. Kind of. We have to set the stage here a little bit. The location of this infamous event was called Mississippi Canyon Block 252 in the Gulf of Mexico off the Louisiana coastline. The rights to drill for oil in this area were purchased by BP in March of 2008 for a solid $34 million. Because saying Mississippi Canyon Block 252 is an absolute mouthful and no one would ever remember the name, BP held a contest among its employees to name the new lease spot. The winning name was Macondo. Now, for those of you unaware, the name Macondo is the name of a fictional town in the book 100 Years of Solitude, which is an absolute downer of a book in which a family lives in a town that is cursed and horrible things happen to them over and over and over again, because foreshadowing is always fun. The Macondo location was being estimated to contain about 50 million barrels of oil. And that's not a joke. That's literally the name of the town, it, it, the cursed town, that is literally the name of, that won an internal contest at BP. Like They I could not have picked a better name for this location. Before even beginning the drilling at Makondo, BP had to submit an initial exploration plan for drilling in Makondo. I'm not going to go into super detail about it. It's pretty standard stuff. But there is one detail I would be remiss not to mention. There is a section on oil spills information. None of it was required to be included in the report because it was under an overarching spill system put in place by BP. So basically, they didn't have to have like a specific oil spill plan for this particular well. However three separate times in the report, BP states it is unlikely that an accidental oil spill release would occur from the proposed activities. Basically, BP wrote off Macondo as being unlikely to cause a spill, and whatever they had in place at the time would be more than enough to cover any spill. They also said that the well was so far from land, 47 miles, that it would never reach land they could not have a spill big enough to make it all the way to land before it was contained or collected. If that had been the case, we wouldn't be talking about it. So anyway, Macondo Oilfield was owned by BP, and drilling first began in October of 2009 by a semi-submersible rig named Marionis that was owned by Transocean that was being run on behalf of BP. They were drilling away in the Gulf when the rig got smacked by Hurricane Ida, which damaged the rig and made them give up after only drilling 4,032 feet under the sea floor. So they had to change tactics, and that's where Deepwater Horizon comes in. Deepwater Horizon was a semi-submersible rig. Remember, that means it had, at this point, the new design was two pontoons located under the water that sit low enough that they are not impacted by waves, and give the rig a nice balanced float on the surface for easier drilling. So, the way this semi-submersible works. So, the original one, the Blue Water one, had four different pontoons that you would fill partially with water, and they would sink down, and it would sit, and the waves wouldn't move the rig, and it was anchored to the sea floor. The way Deepwater Horizon was made was imagine a pontoon boat except the pontoons are sticking way down. They fill the pontoons with water, it sinks down below, and then it just sits there. And instead of being anchored to the seafloor to keep it in place, it has thrusters on all sides to keep it in location through GPS. The Deepwater Horizon is operating at such deep water that actually anchoring it to the seafloor is almost impossible. So they're using thrusters and gps to keep themselves centered over the well to make sure they don't damage the riser and all of the drilling equipment that's going down into the hole that's important and also the other important part is there are only two pontoons that run the entire length of either side of the drilling rig so when it's full of water it sinks down it doesn't move when it it needs to move it all the water is pumped out of the pontoons it rises up and then it can travel as a normal boat In total, the Deepwater Horizon was 396 feet long by 256 feet wide and 136 feet tall. The official listing stated that it could drill to 30,000 feet in maximum depth, but earlier in 2009, they had reached a depth of 35,050 feet, which made it the deepest drilled oil well in the world. Now, BP did not own Deepwater Horizon. It was owned by Transocean. BP would design the well and how to drill the hole, but all the work would be done by contractors and Transocean with BP on site to do supervision of the well. Deepwater Horizon arrived on site on January thirty-first, two 2010. Like I said, rather than being moored into position using large mooring chains, Deepwater Horizon was kept in place using thrusters and satellite positioning. Immediately upon arrival, the Deepwater Horizon's first task was to place a blowout preventer over the wellhead that the Marianas had already started. The blowout preventer prevents blowouts. There were several ways to prevent blowouts using this particular blowout preventer. The top two were rubber rings around the pipe that would seal the space around the drill pipe closed. The next five prevention sets were called blind shear ramps. They would be set off and cut through the drill pipe, sealing the pipe entirely closed. So I need to explain how an oil well is drilled. Obviously at the very top you start at a wide drill bit. As you get further down you have to put what's called casing inside of the hole. This is to prevent the hole from collapsing in on you. But obviously once you put that casing in you can't put the same size drill bit inside the hole and continue drilling down because the casing takes up some of the space around where the drill bit was so you have to get a smaller drill bit and as you go farther and farther down your drill bit gets smaller and smaller and smaller as the casing fits in a smaller and smaller space inside of the well basically it's like a telescope underground so when you like a pirate's telescope when you pull it out it's it's uh it's the smaller tubes are inside. You just pull it straight out, and they. when you need to collapse it, they sit inside of each other. It's basically what a well is underground. So what the blowout preventer does, what those first two are, is preventing the annular space. So you have your drill bit all the way down in the ground. You've got your casing on the outside, and then you have your drill pipe down the middle. The blowout preventer is closing the annular space around the drill pipe. And then the blind shears are just cutting the whole thing completely closed. So if you close the top two, you're just closing the space around the drill pipe, but oil and gas or drilling mud can go down the pipe for the drill bit. If you shear the whole thing off, you're just closing it completely. So then what exactly is a blowout? We have a blowout preventer, so what's a blowout? One thing you have to understand about drilling is the oil is obviously underground but when it is as deep underground as it was in the Macondo area, it is at extremely high pressure. Now, what keeps the oil underground currently is layers of non-porous rock. Obviously, in order to get the oil out, they have to drill a hole down into the ground past the level of the non-porous rock to get the oil to come out into what's called the pay sands, where the oil is. This gives the oil a place where the impermeable layer is now gone, and a path to the surface since the oil tends to be lighter than everything else, and the pressure is looking for a release. It's basically like heat. Heat moves from high heat areas to low heat areas. Oil moves from high oil areas to low oil areas, in this case, the hole they've just drilled into the ground. But obviously, they don't want the oil coming out of the ground before they've finished the hole and been able to set up the well to actually control where the oil is going. So in order to do that, they have to apply counterpressure. Now, if they apply too much counterpressure, that can crack the rock layer they are drilling through and allow the oil to escape through the cracks. If they apply too little pressure, well, the oil will blow right up by, up and out the freshly drilled hole in what is called a blowout. Now, how do they apply this counter pressure? They use what's called drilling mud. They put enough drilling mud down in the hole, they pump it down on top of the drill bit, and the weight of that drilling mud keeps the oil down in the hole, doesn't allow it to seep back. But if you apply too much, it will overpressure and push the oil back out from the drill bit, out into the porous rock, and up and out, and cause a whole bunch of problems. So, in order to prevent this, they installed the a blowout preventer to seal all the ways the oil could come flying out. So, we are at Deepwater Horizon. We're drilling down into the ground. It's doing the whole thing. Now, the way BP tells it, everything was hunky-dory until April. If you talk to the workers on the oil rig, it was not going well, which is pretty standard for, you know, everything. One of the worst days was March 8th. On that day, mud had begun to flow into the cracked walls of the formation, drilling mud that is. This caused the pressure coming from out of the hole to be greater than the pressure that was being pushed into the hole, and the rig kicked, jamming the drill bit, or not the drill bit, but the drill pipe into the wall of the well. Everything had to stop while the drill pipe was unstuck from the well. It stuck for nine days. So much gas was emanating from the well and up and around the deep water horizon that cookouts to make food were banned for fear of causing, ironically, an explosion. But despite several more kicks, they eventually hit the actual location of the oil but they also exceeded the pressure of the formation with drilling mud, so it cracked and drilling mud started to flow out into the foundation instead of back up to the oil rig like it should yet again. They were able to fix the cracks in the found formation, but realized something. If they kept drilling deeper, the pressure imbalance would keep happening, and that means less oil and a smaller payday. So they decided to stop there for the integrity of the well. 18,360 feet below the surface of the earth, which is short of the 20,200 feet that they had planned on drilling, but they succeeded. They figured there were 50 million barrels of oil in the location and it would be worth setting up for oil production and the well would be stable. What they had to do next is pick which type of casing they wanted for the hole. There are two types of casings one is called long string which is basically just a single long metal pipe that runs from the well head all the way down to the place where the oil is the second is called a liner this is set down deep into the well and anchored to the casing already in place from drilling the well a liner is more complicated to place and oftentimes leads to more leaks the original plan was to place the long string But testing showed that it would not be reliably cemented into place, so they switched to a liner. But BP used one of their experts to retest the testing that Halliburton, the company that was doing the cementing, did, and found that a long string would work, so they switched back. Now, in order to place this in the proper location and make sure that the casing is in the center of the hole, they have what are called centralizers. These are important because when the cement is flowed down into the piping, it goes all the way down, then flows back up all the way up on either side to cement the casing inside the already drilled hole into place. If these centralizers are not installed correctly or move, then the production casing will be off-center and the cement will not flow perfectly around and fill in all the gaps. I'm going to try and describe this as simply as possible. So when you're drilling the well, your hole is inevitably bigger at the top than it is at the bottom. We've talked about that. Because of the pressures, casing has to be placed deep into the hole to keep the hole open as drill goes deeper. We talked about that. Once that casing has been placed, obviously the drill bit has to get smaller to fit in the casing. Talked about that. Rinse and repeat all the way down until you get to the oil layer. What we're talking about here is a single pipe that goes all the way down to the bottom of the hole, but it has to be directly in the middle of the hole, because the rest of it around that pipe is going to be full of cement to keep it in place. If it is not perfectly centered, the cement will flow to the path of least resistance, aka the place with the biggest area. So if you've got it kicked somewhat to the left, the area on the right is going to be larger. That means that the cement is going to go to, want to go to that direction because it takes less pressure to get there because there's more space. That means there's not going to be as much cement on the left side of your pipe and you're not going to get the cement there that's going to seal the oil coming up and make the oil go up the production casing. Imagine the production casing is a straw, except your drink is at super high pressures and 5,000 feet underwater, and then 20,000 more feet underground, and if you don't do it right, it will go flying up in your face all around the straw, and the coke will kill everything it touches. That's basically what oil drilling is deep underwater. All that to say, the original plan called for 16 or more centralizers to be placed on the long string. One of the Halliburton engineers even ran simulations showing the need for all those plus some extra centralizers. The BP Wells team leader complained that the additional centralizers would add extra time and work for the installation of the long string and added a bunch of pieces that could come off during installation. So, they decided to only go with six centralizers, which you'll notice is significantly less than 16, and they also did not ask for any further testing of only using six centralizers compared to the Plan 16 Because why would you want to do that when you're decreasing your amount of keeping your thing that's super important in the middle by half? They didn't even tell Halliburton that they were only using six centralizers. Halliburton found out because one of their engineers overheard a conversation between BP workers discussing it on the rig. BP came to the conclusion they only needed six centralizers because the hole was straight. Which is a choice, because if you've ever tried to put something directly down the middle of a hole with nothing to keep it in place in the middle, it is ridiculously hard. Now imagine that is a 20,000-foot-long hole. Just to give you a good idea of where BP stood on this whole centralizers thing, they literally ended an email discussing only using the six centralizers with, but who cares? It's done. End of story we will probably be fine and we'll get a good cement job. That is a direct quote, just so we're all aware of where they stood. The long string was officially installed in its final position on April 19, 2010. Then became time for the cementing of the hole. Now this process is complicated. I mean, it's in a hole deep under the ocean, deep underground. You can't see it you can't tell when something is broken. You can't tell if the cement is actually setting or getting to the, all the areas it needs to. You only have two things to rely on, pressure and volume, which are barely indicators at all, but essentially they have to set it so the cement only flows one way. There is a valve that is installed inside that is held open to allow drilling mud to flow upwards as they are installing the long string. Then once the string is installed, they want all of the fluid to only flow downwards, right? You don't want cement flowing back up. It's supposed to be a certain amount per barrel of material flowed down flips off the valve and makes the valve one way. This one in particular was supposed to be six barrels per minute or 600 psi. Problem though, they quickly hit 1800 psi and nothing was happening, which you'll note is a solid three times the pressure that should be required. So they took a timeout and decided, you know what, let's just keep pushing up the pressure and see what happens. Eventually, the pressure hit 3,142 PSI and then plummeted, indicating that the valve had fixed itself and the material was flowing. Then came time for the cement. And of course, we have to talk about BP skimping again. They openly admitted at this point that their number one concern was another loss of product incident after the kicks earlier. There were three choices that BP made that imposed restrictions on Halliburton's cement job. Number 1. They normally will completely circulate the drilling mud in the hole to check for oil in the bottom of the well before cementing and it also cleans out the well, which allows for better cementing. Normally, this takes about 2,760 barrels to completely clear the well. BP allowed 350 barrels to be circulated. The second decision was they decided on a lower rate of cement pumping into the well. They need to use the cement to push the mud from the space around the casing. Higher flow rates obviously help create more pressure to move the mud out of the way. BP decided that the higher flow rate was an unacceptable risk to their returns because it could break the surrounding rock formation and allow the release of more oil, and so demanded a lower flow rate. And the third decision was that BP limited the amount of cement that would actually be put down into the hole. They mandated that the cement in the annular zone, space between the outside of the hole and the production casing, which is basically the same as the casing around the, the actual hole itself and what used to be the drill pipe is now the production casing, would extend no more than 500 feet above the hydrocarbon zone where the oil is. This fulfilled the government's requirement, but not BP's own requirement of 1,000 feet. So why so little? They were afraid if they pumped too much cement in, it would place too much pressure on the oil layer and break the formation, allowing the oil to escape. Not to cause an oil spill, but that they wouldn't be able to get it out. In the end, they pumped 60 barrels of cement into the hole, which BP engineers realized was not enough. But that's what they did. Now that's how BP screwed this up for Halliburton. And that's got you feeling a bit bad for Halliburton, right? They were unfairly constrained by BP's demands. Yeah, hate break it to you, they're not innocent here. BP and Halliburton decided to use a nitrogen foam cement. It's basically cement injected with nitrogen bubbles. It lightens the cement and therefore decreases the amount of pressure put on the rock formation holding the oil. Now normally, the cement to be used on the well is flown back to a laboratory for testing to make sure it will still work. This was done numerous times by Halliburton. They tested once in early February, and the cement failed spectacularly. This was never reported to BP. Once again, on February 10th, they tested again, which then failed again. This report was sent to BP, but no discussion of the failure happened. And then they tested again sometime in mid-April. That test also failed. That one was also not reported to BP. They then decided to run the test again. They started the test at approximately 2 a.m. on April 18th. Remind you that this is the fourth test they're running on this cement. The previous three failed. The test takes 48 hours to finish. Considering the explosion happened on the 20th and the cementing done was was done by 1240 a.m. on the morning of the 20th, it appears that Halliburton had no idea what the results of this testing were and just went ahead and cemented it anyway with three failed tests in hand. Good choices. So why all the shortcuts? Well, the well was running five weeks late, which adds up real quick if the price of running the thing is 750000 bucks a day. So they wanted to save money and get the well done and in production. Just before 6 a.m. on April 20th, 2010, one of the Halliburton crew members sent an email saying, we have completed the job and it went well. Another email was sent to the BP team that said the Halliburton cement team did a great job. The music is playing here to tell you guys that this is probably a good time to take a quick break if you need to pause before we finish out the rest of this episode. There's likely a lot more left. Before we get into the next part of the story here, I need to tell you something that just adds to the weird foreshadowing of this disaster. On April 20th, 2010, the Vice President for Drilling for BP and three other executives were literally on the deepwater horizon to celebrate seven years without a lost time incident, aka no major breakdowns or disasters on the rig. Sometimes things are just too ridiculous. This is true. They were on there to celebrate going seven years without anything going wrong, and it's just gonna go really, really wrong really, really quick here. So, the next phase in this was to temporarily abandon the well because the production equipment would be installed by a smaller and less costly rig. So the first part of the temporary abandonment was at a positive pressure test to make sure that the production casing could withstand pressures. So they pulled the drill pipe out, and closed the shear ram portion of the blowout preventer, and then ran fluids through the well for 35 minutes. First at 250 psi, then again at 2,500 psi. The well passed both. The next step was called a negative pressure test. Basically, the crew needed to find out if the cement at the bottom of the well and along the sides had held up well enough to prevent an oil leak once the drilling mud had been removed and the well had been abandoned. Because removing that drilling mud obviously removes the downward pressure that's holding the hydrocarbons in place. So, they removed the mud and drained the drill pipe pressure down to almost zero. But there was a problem. They could not get it to zero. The lowest they could get it was to 266 PSI, and then when they closed it, it shot back up to over 1000 PSI. They then tried again and managed to get it to zero, but when they closed it, it went right back up to over 700 PSI. That's not supposed to happen. If it was holding properly, it should stay at zero PSI once they closed the well. So they tried a third time, same thing, got it down to zero, closed the well, immediately shot up to 1,400 PSI that time, so they then decided on a different tactic. One of the crew members said that the pressure was being exerted onto the drill pipe from drilling mud in the riser above the hole, so above the actual blowout preventer. The riser is the part where the mud is flowed back up to the rig, so they had removed the mud from the drill pipe and replaced it with water and then put the mud in the riser, because the water is obviously lighter than everything else. The crew member was saying the pressure from the riser was causing the pressure they were seeing when they closed the well. So they should instead test it on a different pipe called the kill line that also helps to regulate fluids in the well. This one stayed at zero PSI for 30 minutes. Even though the pressure on the drill pipe the entire time was 1,400 PSI. It never changed. The pressure never went down to zero. In order for a positive... a... a a good result, passing result for a negative pressure test it has to be zero PSI when they open the well and has to remain at zero PSI once they put the seawater in and close the well. It never did that. Now we obviously know that the only reason there was pressure on the drill pipe was because there was a leak in the well. Why they didn't see this, I don't know. And neither does, well, anyone. It almost seems like they just wanted to get the well from hell done. So, they moved to the next step. The next step was then removing all the drilling mud from the well and sealing it at the top. This started about 8.02 PM. So, one of the things to understand about this is the volume and rate of flow coming out of the well should equal the volume and rate of flow that is being pumped into the well. It's a closed system. It should all be equal. An increase in volume obviously indicates that something extra from somewhere is flowing into the well. If the flow coming out of the well is greater than the flow into the well, something else is probably contributing to that increase and is generally a bad sign. Everything was going fine until 9 p.m. Pressure inside the drill pipe can also be an indication that there is a well leak. If the pressure in the drill is decreasing, it can be an indication that there is a leak and the lighter hydrocarbons are escaping to the surface, and if it increases, it can indicate that the hydrocarbons are pushing heavier drilling mud upwards. It all depends on if the pressure being exerted by the pumps has changed or not. If the pumps have not changed, and pressure is changing, something bad is likely happening. For this particular case, the drilling mud was being replaced with seawater. Because the seawater was lighter than the mud, this meant that the pressure should steadily decrease because it's getting easier to pump the seawater in, and the seawater just puts forth less pressure overall, right up until 9.01 p.m. Then, Pressure inside the pipe began to increase, which is obviously not good. But no one would see that increase in pressure, because at the same time, the crew was dealing with a different issue altogether. There's a material called a spacer placed in the well for negative pressure test in order to keep the oil-based drilling mud and the seawater separate. The spacer was then coming out of the well to continue the temporary abandonment process. But they would need to inspect this spacer to make sure it didn't have a sheen, aka oil, on it. Or they couldn't dispose of it overboard. They had to carry it all the way to land and dispose of it there. So everyone went off to deal with that to make sure that there was no oil in the spacer. Critically, they shut down the pumps to do so. Now think about this. If the pumps are not running, the pressure inside the well should be remaining steady at best or slightly decreasing, right? There should be no movement inside the well to change any of the pressure. The pumps were shut down at 9.08 p.m. They would be shut down for a total of six minutes. During those six minutes, the pressure inside the drill pipe went up 250 psi. No one noticed. The only reason, and I'm not exaggerating, the only reason for pressure to increase in the drill pipe was for there to be a leak inside the well. There is no other explanation. But they turned the pumps back on and without realizing what was happening. At 9.18, a pressure relief valve for one of the well pumps blew. Several crew members were sent to fix this pressure relief valve. Sometime between then and 9.30, Dewey Rivette, Transocean's driller, noticed a weird difference in pressure between the drill pipe and the kill line. Trying to figure out what was going on there, they shut off the pumps at around 9.30. At 9.39, the drill pipe pressure tanked. This meant that the hydrocarbons had made it past the drilling mud and were now escaping the well they were at the point of no return. Floorhand Caleb Holloway and Dan Barron were working on the main deck when Caleb just happened to glance up. Drilling mud was blowing out of the well like a water fountain. He realized that no one was on the drilling floor to deal with the blowout, so he sprinted up there with Dan directly behind him. Getting close to the drilling floor, he realized he couldn't go any farther. He radioed to Dewey to see what he needed to do, but got no response. Meanwhile, Those up at the controls routed the flow of drilling mud and gas into the mud gas separator and closed one of the annular space preventers on the blowout preventer to shut off the well. It was too late. The gas was already above the blowout preventer. It was coming out of the riser at an astonishing rate, and the mud gas separator, basically separating drilling mud from gas, was quickly overwhelmed and allowed the gas flowing up to rain down all over the rig. The explosions that would follow were inevitable at this point. One thing you have to remember, natural gas comes up with oil. Natural gas in nature is completely odorless. The reason it has that rotten egg smell is because we add what is called mercaptan to the gas because of various disasters in the past, namely the New London School Explosion. So at this time, there is massively flammable gas coming out of the well, as well as oil. It's setting off alarms, but they can't smell it. They know it's there, but they don't know exactly where. Sometimes, if you have enough concentration of gas, the air will shimmer, but that's really it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. If it gets to a high enough concentration, you can kind of like almost taste it on your tongue, but it just kind of feels different. You can't really see it until it gets to a high enough concentration, and then you can see the shimmer, but that's really it. They have sensors to detect for gas all over the rig, but there's an issue. The bridge officer, Andrea Fletus was up on the bridge. She was seeing the drilling mud flying off the rig into the ocean, and then the gas alarms began lighting up on her console. But the thing is, they were all lighting up, and they were all lighting up as magenta, meaning extremely high levels of gas. So they didn't know where exactly it was, but it was safe to assume the gas was everywhere. But she didn't know what to do. There were so many alarms and so many things going off all at the same time that she basically froze in place and did nothing. Meanwhile, Caleb Holloway and Daniel Barron were in the heavy tool room on the drilling fort. And that's when Caleb could see the haze. He began to be able to taste the natural gas in the air. He yelled to Daniel, they had gas and they had to go now. And they sprinted out of there down to the main deck. So this was obviously bad and it was going to continue to be very bad. They had reached the point of no return where an explosion on the rig was all but guaranteed, but they could at least shut the well off and prevent more oil and gas from escaping, right? That's the whole reason the blowout preventer exists. They attempted to do so. They closed an annual preventer and a variable bore ram by 9.46 p.m., but that is part of the problem. Neither of those closed the entire drill pipe, and the gas was coming out of the drill pipe and it's likely that the flow rates out of the riser and the gas and the drill pipe at this point were too high for either of those to actually do the job effectively. They could not close because the flow rates were so high that it literally was preventing them from closing. Hydrocarbons were still actively coming up past those two fail-safes, but they had one more trick up their sleeve. The hydraulic shear specifically designed to cut through the well pipe and seal the entire well. One thing, though. Transocean's Well Control Handbook specifically said the shears should only be used in, quote, exceptional circumstances. So were these exceptional circumstances? Because this kills the whole whale, Straight up shears it completely closed. It would cost thousands upon thousands of dollars and a ton of man hours to fix the well. Everyone on board was hesitant to press that button. They all knew that if it was deemed not worthy of being an exceptional situation... It could be their job on the line. No one pushed the button. It also likely didn't matter. Subsequent investigations showed that the blowout preventer had never had the maintenance inspection the manufacturer required every three to five years. That particular preventer was ten years old. And even more investigations showed that the preventer suffered from a host of issues that were ignored because, well, why fix them if you're never going to need it? Things like dead batteries and leaking hydraulic lines were rampant so who knows if it actually would have worked if they hit the button. You gotta love that on your one failsafe. There were three places that held controls for the alarm system that could sound the general master alarm, signaling an immediate evacuation of the rig, and kill the ventilation system, electrical system, and the engines. Those three places were the bridge, the drill shack area, and the engine control room. Anyone in any of those places could hit the button and kill essentially all ignition sources and stop the spread of the rapidly releasing flammable gas. Originally, the evacuation alarm was supposed to be automatic whenever the system detected large amounts of gas. Transocean changed that because they wanted it to be manual and said that all automatic alarms were less safe than manual alarms. But it also didn't matter because the person at the alarm panel on the bridge, Andrea Fletis, had never been trained on how to do any of it. So, that's good. So the bridge isn't hitting the button. They openly stated that the situation was overwhelming and no one had prepared for that many alarms and that many things going wrong all at once. But what about the engine control room? They also had controls to kill everything and set the alarm off. Well, they received two calls which essentially gave them no information. They thought it was just a routine kick and everything was under control. They had no idea that gas was actively flowing to the engines that they sat between. Literally, the engine control room sat between two of the engines. Two of the six engines were actively running, engine number three and engine number six. And guess where the end control room was? Directly between engine number three and engine number six. But again, they had no idea what was happening. If they killed the engines then, the rig could float away from the well while it was still connected, potentially severely damaging the equipment. If they did without with no knowledge of what was actually happening, that was a multi-million dollar damage that they did not want to be responsible for. So they waited. And that leaves the drill shack. The drill shack shut down the electrical and ventilation controls near the drilling floor, because they obviously knew what was going on. We know that because William Stoner, one of the crew members in the engine control room, saw the lights turn off on the monitor. We don't know what exactly happened in the drill shack all the entire time because the men inside died in the subsequent explosions and fires. About 9.49 p.m., Engine 3 began to rev extremely quickly. Mike Williams was in the electronics shop next to Engine 3. He got up from his desk to go figure out what was happening when his computer monitor exploded. Then light bulbs began to explode. He turned to look at his computer monitor to figure out what exactly just happened when he got hit in the head with a door. Everything around him exploded. This was the first explosion. He managed to stay conscious and stuck a pinlight flashlight in his mouth and began to crawl where he thought the door was. He hadn't made it very far when a second explosion blew him 30 feet the other way. The man was covered in blood and probably in extreme amounts of pain, But he started to crawl again he crawled across two men laying on the floor he thought were dead because they didn't respond and made it to the lifeboat deck but instead of launching a lifeboat and saving himself he decided to head to the bridge the large concentration of gas had finally reached the engines made them rev up because they were adding fuel then found an ignition point what that ignition point was doesn't really matter could have been anything All that matters is the first explosion was likely centered at engine number 3. Then a few minutes later, a second explosion hit engine number 6. Now this is as good a time as any to remind you, it's not just oil workers on this ship. It's a full crew. Like, they have cooks and cleaning people and the whole nine yards. They're out there for weeks and months at a time. There were 126 people on board this rig at the time of the blowout and subsequent explosions and fires. So the bridge decided to set off the general alarm after the explosions, because, duh, when else are you going to set off the alarm? Obviously, testimony differs here, but several people say that after activating the alarm, Andrea froze up and didn't know what to do, so a different worker got on the intercom and yelled, fire, fire, fire. Just before the explosion, Chief Engineer Steve Bertone had sat down in his buck to read a book. He heard a noise like a freight train and felt the rig shake. Realizing that was not normal, he got up and started to get dressed, and then the lights went out. Getting dressed a bit faster now, he was immediately rocked across his room by the second explosion. The first explosion is the one that made him get up out of bed. He got up, undeterred, and made it to the hallway, where he hollered at several people to get their emergency stations, then headed for the bridge. What he found when he got there was Captain Cooktis screaming at Andrea Flaitis for pushing the Mayday distress button, despite the fact that the ship had no power, no engines, and a massive, uncontrolled, and uncontrollable fire on board. He decided that was the time to scream about not having permissions to send a Mayday when that was very much what they needed. But, whatever. It was right after this that Mike Williams, if you remember Mike Williams, the dude that got hit in the head with a door and was bleeding arrived at the bridge. And this had to have been an interesting sight for the people on the bridge because he's literally bleeding from his head. It's gushing all down his face, all down his shirt. He walks in and told them that the engine control room was gone. Steve Bertone replied, probably a bit incredulously, what do you mean gone? They were blown up, my man. So they are completely powerless. They have no engines. They have no electricity. The entire rig is burning. There are explosions happening all over the rig, and they are tied to a giant fire hose of one of the most flammable materials known to man. Obviously, the next step is figure out how to no longer be attached to that giant fire hose. Literally, not, not like a fire hose put it out, like a fire hose shooting fire out of the ground. They need to cut off the oil and gas so the fire has no fuel, right? Luckily, they have an emergency disconnect system. That is probably one of the first things you want to install in one of these. That would disconnect the Deepwater Horizon from the well, thus cutting off the fire on board's fuel source, and it would seal the well, completely cutting off the flow of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. A complete win-win. One man, Chris Present, realized this is what they had to do. They had to hit the emergency disconnect system to kill the main fuel source for this massive fire and continuing explosion's Damage to the well be damned. They were already going to be massively delayed, the whole rig was on fire, and two engine had just exploded, and Chris Pleasant made it to the bridge and told Captain Kukta he was hitting the EDS. The captain's reply to that This is a direct quote. No, calm down, we're not hitting EDS. Now I don't know about you guys, but like the rig is on fire. There have been two massive explosions blowing up two of six engines. Chances are the other engines are not working, or if they do manage to turn them on, it will lead to more explosions, which, you know, seems bad when you're on a giant thing in the middle of the ocean 47 miles from land. There have been countless smaller explosions. One of the guys who arrived at the bridge was at least partially covered in blood. They have not heard from anyone on the drilling floor in several minutes. The well is very clearly still spewing out, the most flammable material on the planet. They have no electricity. The lights are all out. It's basically 10 p.m. in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. So basically the only light at this point is the moon and the massive burn- burning oil rig that they're standing on without power. They also could not fight the fire because you needed power for that. The phones weren't working. The handheld radios weren't working. Now thankfully They did have a way to communicate to, you know, literally anyone on land because there was a ship tethered to the Deepwater Horizon, the Bankston, that was able to call the Coast Guard for help. And the good idea that Andrea Flaitis had to hit the distress signal meant that a nearby fishing vessel, the Rambling Wreck, fishing vessel is a stretch to be honest, it was three best friends hanging out on a boat fishing, heard the call. They were able to call the Coast Guard and head over to help, but the Deepwater Horizon was essentially dead in the water and while still attached to that well, it was only going to get worse. But they were resistant to actually do that. Why probably falls on the shoulder of BP and Transocean, who were so dead set on making this well and making money, and not having any further delays that when it came time to actually do the emergency thing, to actually say to hell with all this and cut the line, no one could do it. Eventually someone yelled that they needed permission from a particular person, and thankfully... That particular person chose that moment to show up at the bridge and give the go-ahead, which they then did. Tried to. the The button was pressed at least. The lights lit up, indicating that it was severed. But like so many other things on this, it also failed. The rig didn't move. They were still attached to the burning fire hose of doom, but the workers on board didn't know that yet. And even beyond that, the blowout preventer was fitted with a dead man system so if all the communication between the rig and the blowout preventer were severed, it would set off the blind shear ram. But, in a shocking turn of events, that also failed. But, meanwhile, they decided on a daring plan. They would get to the standby generators, get them started, and be able to fight the fire. Obviously, this is contingent upon not being attached to the well anymore. There was only one major problem with this plan, besides the fact that they were not actually disconnected from the well. The gigantic burning oil derrick was standing between them and the generators. So three of the men from the bridge decided they would make the daring trek across the rig past the flames to get to the standby generators and make them start. They made it. They made it to the generators. Meanwhile, back down in the rig, a group of men were trying to figure out which way was up after the explosion. Randy Ezel was laying in the remains of his office trying to get up. Sitting under the debris, he told himself, Either you get up, or you're going to lay here and die. So he got himself up and out, and tried to crawl through the debris toward a source of air. That blowing air was methane gas. So he decided to go a different way, obviously, when he was happened upon by another worker with a flashlight. And then they found Jimmy Harrell, the man who would be the one to give permission to push the EDS button. He had been in the shower and somehow managed to put on coveralls, but no shoes. Randy and the other worker, Stan Carden, then got to work pulling debris off another man, Wyman Wheeler. They attempted to walk Wheeler out, but he told them to leave him and save himself. Randy emphatically denied that request and told him they were not going to leave him there to die. Then they heard another voice. It was Buddy Trahan, one of the super important VIPs that was out on the visit that day to celebrate seven years without a loss of time incident. Clearly, that celebration was a little early. So they got to work digging him out. Soon, several people came back with a stretcher to carry Trahan out of there into the lifeboats. At this point... Both lifeboats had already been deployed. Some people had made the lifeboats, others had jumped off the rig into the water. Randy Ezel did not leave Wyman Wheeler's side. They sat there together for only a few minutes that probably felt like days. In that dark, exploded hallway, listening to the place that they had lived and worked and had good times and bad times and stress and jubilation explode and burn around them terrified that they would never make it off the rig, but eventually some of the crew members would return with a stretcher for Wheeler and carry him out of there. Back at the standby generators, Steve Bertone, Mike Williams, with significantly less blood gushing from his head, and another man, Paul Meinhart, were desperately trying to get the generators to start. They were not starting. They tried over and over and over again, but they would not start, and they quickly began to realize they probably were not disconnected from the actual well because there were fires and explosions were continuing to grow. Giving up, the three men sprinted back to the bridge. There, Steve Bertone told those in the bridge it was time to abandon ship. The deep water horizon was done. There was nothing left they could do but get everyone off that they could alive. By the time Bertone had announced abandon ship, both lifeboats were gone but at least 10 people were still on the rig, still alive. They would have to use an inflatable life raft. Again, we run into yet another problem. No one knew how to inflate or lower the life rafts. Eventually, they managed to get it inflated and ready to lower. Now, there is some confusion here. Steve Bertone stated in a witness statement to the Coast Guard immediately after the disaster that while they were inflating the life raft, they attempted to get Wyman Wheeler into it on his stretcher and were having issues getting him on there. During this struggle, apparently Captain Kupta suggested that they just leave Wheeler behind, which, considering how he has allegedly acted throughout this entire incident, based on numerous reports from numerous other individuals, I tend to believe Bertone. Numerous different workers on board Stated at various points that Captain Cocteau was either woefully underprepared, confused, behind on his actions, and apparently willing to abandon a dude who was injured on the actively burning oil rig. Thankfully, they did not do that, and Bertone shoved Wheeler onto the raft, and it was lowered down with six or seven of the ten or so left on board. But then something happened. As the life raft was being lowered, it began to fall and flung Andrea Fletis out of the boat into the water. It finally landed right side up, but they couldn't find the paddles to move the life raft away from the giant burning thing behind them, so Bertone and a few others hopped out of the boat and began to pull the boat away by swimming. And then it got hairy. Well, more hairy than it could already be. Because, remember I said not everyone was on board the lifeboat? First, Captain Cookta came tumbling out of the smoke to hit the water. Then another worker, and finally, as if this dude hadn't been through enough, Mike Williams got a running start across the helipad and flung himself off the edge of the rig into the water. Steve Bertone reported seeing Mike Williams' silhouette, highlighted by the moon, sprinting across the helipad and launching himself as far away as he could. So that dude was in his room or in his engine control room, was walking out. Got hit in the head by a door, then got up and crawled across the floor, then was blown up by a second explosion, was bleeding profusely, went up to the bridge rather than saving himself. At the bridge, realized there was nothing they could do, so they he then accompanied two other men across the burning rig to try and restart everything while still bleeding from the head to try and save the rig. Realized that wouldn't work, so they made the exact same trek back across the burning rig that's still connected to the fire hose of doom, and then instead of being able to get on the lifeboat, he had to fling himself off of the rig into the water. What a day for that guy. So we're back in the water, and they are pulling this boat through the water away from the burning rig by swimming. But eventually, the boat stopped moving, and they couldn't figure out why. It turns out... The boat was still tied to the rig. Captain Cookta, redeeming himself slightly, quickly swam to one of the quick-response boats that the Bankston had launched. Remember that boat was there? It launched some quick-response boats to pull people out of the water. He swam over to one of those, climbed on board, grabbed a knife, and swam back and cut the boat free. Everyone who survived the disaster was off the rig. They were all brought to the Bankston. During all this, the Ramblin' Wreck, the fishing boat with three friends on board, did everything they could to search for survivors among the debris. These three civilians, with no connection to this rig at all, risked driving their boat around this burning giant hunk of metal in the ocean up until 3 a.m., searching for hours to find any survivors. They would see something dark floating in the water and hope it was a person they could save only to find it was debris. Eventually, they would help ferry medical supplies to the Bankston to help with the injured there. At about 1.30 a.m., the rig listed heavily to the side and began to rotate as more and more explosions were set off on the deck. By 3 a.m., the rig spun all the way around and had moved 1,600 feet from where it was originally located. This whole time, the crew of the Deepwater Horizon were forced to stay nearby as the Coast Guard would not allow the Bankston to leave. The crew was forced to watch their home, away from home, burn and begin to sink, knowing full well that 11 of their co-workers, friends and basically family members were somewhere on board that rig. Eventually, the next day, the crew would be taken via boat back to Louisiana, where they would be interviewed by the Coast Guard before being released to go home. The names of the 11 men missing from aboard the Deepwater Horizon are as follows. Jason Anderson, Donald Clark, Stephen Curtis, Gordon Jones, Dewey Rivette, Shane Roshto, Adam Wise, Carl Dale Kleppinger, Blair Manuel, Roy Kipp, and Dale Burkeen. Their bodies have never been recovered. So one of the things we need to talk about is what the cause of this disaster actually was. And we're just going to start with just this part because we have a whole bunch more to talk about. But the likely cause of the explosion was a hot surface ignition on one of the on engine number 3 most likely. The engine began to rev because it was being fed more fuel and that richer fuel was making it rev extremely quickly. And then the gas cloud likely ignited from a hot surface on the engine and then spread to other areas. That's a very obvious ignition source for this explosion. We have multiple credible eyewitness reports saying that the first explosion was centered around engine number three, the second explosion was centered around engine number six, and then the fire spread from there onto the actual drilling floor and up around the rig. Now, the cause of the blowout is significantly more difficult to determine. Because of obvious reasons, the actual failure inside the well, what caused the actual leak, will probably never be known. But we have some ideas. It could have been the centralizers. They could not have put enough centralizers in there that allowed for the cement to only flow on one side. So one side didn't receive any cement at all, and the hydrocarbons escaped that way. Um, It's possible that the cement never actually fully set, and the hydrocarbons were allowed to escape past it because, well, the cement didn't pass any of the testing, so it obviously was really bad cement. But it's very obviously that something inside the well had to fail in order for there to be the leak. Now, why did the blowout preventer not work? Well, many of the batteries on the blowout preventer that were required to get it to work properly failed. Several of the hydraulic lines that were needed to make it work properly were leaking and were not working properly, obviously. It was a whole lot of poor maintenance... Uh, poor fixing of things, things would break, and they would do the cheapest, quickest, quickest fix so they could go on to the next well. And the other reason the blowout preventer didn't work is because they waited so long to actually try and activate it. Many people on board the rig were nervous to activate this blowout preventer because they felt like if they did, and BP or Transocean or whoever determined that it was not needed, they would be punished. Many of the workers on board the rig reported numerous times that they felt like they were being rushed by BP and Transocean to finish the well, to get the well done, to get it in working condition so that they could stop having to spend all that money because, again, it costs $750,000 a day to have Deepwater Horizon out there. They wanted them to get that done so that they could get their 50 million barrels of oil out of the ground and making the money. And it's hard to make money when you have this giant rig sitting there that you can't do anything with because you have to do maintenance and preventative measures and fix things that are broken. So they just didn't. And that's likely what led to the blowout happening and not being able to control it. And the fact that they were so terrified to actually do the safety procedures that they needed that. It just didn't get done, and also, many people reported that they didn't know how to activate any of the safety procedures anyway, even if they weren't afraid to set them off. So, really, this falls a lot on Transocean and BP's inability to want to do maintenance or to fix things and to train their people properly. But obviously, this disaster did not end after the explosions on board the Deepwater Horizon. Because eventually the Deepwater Horizon is going to sink and it's going to put all those fires out. Which is helpfully currently burning off all of the oil that's coming out of the riser and all of the gas. But when the Deepwater Horizon sinks into the water, it's going to put all those fires out. There's going to be nothing to burn all that oil off. Now obviously all of the oil at this time wasn't being burnt off. But a lot of it was. Some of it was very obviously already going into the ocean because it was coming out at such a rate that it wasn't able to be burned at the same time. So on April 21st, the day after the explosion, Rear Admiral of the Coast Guard, Mary Landry, told reporters, we are only seeing minor sheening on the water. We do not see a major spill emanating from this incident. Basically, the water was only slightly showing signs of any hydrocarbons on the surface, mostly just stuff that was on board the Deepwater Horizon already. This was a good sign this sign would not last. By about 6 p.m. on April 21st, both BP and Transocean were using remote vehicles to try to forcefully close the blowout preventer and stop the flow of oil and gas up onto the slightly listing deepwater horizon. This would also seal off the well and prevent a massive oil spill from out of the broken riser. At 10.22 a.m. on April 22nd, 2010, the Deepwater Horizon finally sank beneath the waves, never to be seen again. It took with it the bodies of the 11 men that died aboard the Deepwater Horizon and about 700,000 gallons of diesel fuel. Meanwhile, the Coast Guard was trying desperately to find any of the missing crew members. They would not. They would be forced to give up the search on April 23rd, 2010. But also on April 23rd, there was some good news the two companies appeared to have been successful in shutting the blowout preventer and keeping more oil from spilling into the Gulf. They finally had some good news after several days of full-on terrible news. It did not last. They quickly discovered that the broken riser above the blowout preventer was leaking thousands of gallons of oil per day, and a kink in another portion of the riser was also leaking oil. The official BP estimate of the rate of leakage at this time was 1,000 barrels per day, which is about 4,200 gallons per day. That estimate was released on April 24th. Literally, the very next day, they realized that, oh, maybe we underestimated the amount of oil being released. Like, I'm not exaggerating, it took them basically 24 hours and a whole lot of head scratching about why the dispersant they were using wasn't working. They had two options. The dispersant had mysteriously just stopped working altogether, or they were way wrong on the amount of oil there. Now, dispersant works in mysterious ways. Well, not really mysterious ways, but the exact compound is a secret. Basically, it breaks up the surface oil slick into smaller parts that then drop below the surface of the ocean and keep them from making it to the shore, where it can cause even more damage. The truth is, oil, in small quantities regularly leaks from underwater fissures, and the oil is then degraded by bacteria. Not like insulted, but broken down. Well, the dispersant was not doing its whole dispersing thing, which means they had way more oil being released than they thought, because it's kind of like a, a the, you, if you have this amount of oil, you need this amount of dispersant to break it up. The dispersant wasn't working with the amount of oil they thought they had, so they obviously had way more oil than they, you know, said they had which is obviously a very bad thing. The new estimate, by BP, not released publicly at the time, was between 1,000 thousand and six thousand barrels per day, which, just spitballing here, but if you originally thought it was a 1,000 and nothing was working as it should, you may want to just operate under the assumption that your actual leak is significantly higher than your previous estimate. Just a thought. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that is a mouthful, on the other hand, had a different estimate. Theirs was five to 10,000 barrels per day. But the only number actually released to the public on April 28th was 5,000 barrels per day. And critically, they phrased it as much as 5,000 barrels a day, rather than the 5,000 being the low end of the estimated range. Now, I need to tell you that one barrel per day is 42 gallons. So this is 42 times 5,000, 42 times 10,000, When you hear barrels, whatever, that is 42 gallons. These two developments quickly showed just how incompetent BP was at responding to oil spills. First of all, their plan was to drill a second hole that intersected with the first hole and fill it with concrete, which would work. But also, you just blew up one area with your incompetence. Maybe a second one in the same area isn't the best idea. And also, that will take a solid three months. So we need something a bit faster, guys. At least temporarily, because letting it sit there for three months while you try and drill a hole as fast as possible after blowing up a hole that you were trying to drill as fast as possible doesn't inspire confidence. And also, you can't just let it leak continuously with nothing to stop it for that long. Let's just discuss some of the finer points of BP's response plan to oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico. First, they had their own plan for oil spills that was submitted and approved by the United States government. It was 582 pages. Clearly, no one had time to read all that, as we are about to find out. And I want to tell you, this plan was specifically, specifically for the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf of Mexico only, and it was approved by the U.S. government. At the top of this ridiculous list that I'm about to give you, the BP technical support section had a man named Dr. Peter Lutz listed as a wildlife and marine life specialist. Dr. Peter Lutz was a marine life and wildlife specialist that worked in southern Florida. Unfortunately, Dr. Lutz had passed away four years before the plan was approved. So, while they were writing this plan and waiting for it to get approved, this man had already been dead. So, kind of difficult to call him with his thoughts on animals covered in oil, but I would be massively entertained by a seance done by the executives of BP to call this man and say, hey, you know, I know you're dead and all, but uh, what do we do about the oil-covered pelicans? But we're not done yet. In one section, they list the wildlife that might be impacted by an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. That section lists all of the wildlife. It lists sea lions, seals, sea otters, and walruses. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to the Gulf of Mexico, but if you haven't, you have something in common with all of those animals. Absolutely none of them ever make appearances in the Gulf of Mexico area. So, not real sure why they'd be included in a specifically Gulf of Mexico spill plan, Maybe they should hold a seance to ask Peter Lutz what actual wildlife are in the Gulf of Mexico so they can make a better plan. They had also stated that even if there was a spill worse than the one coming from the Macondo well, the oil would never reach the shore because it was too far away. That was completely wrong. At the time of the spill, there was a company listed on the Equipment to help clean with cleanup. So they had a whole list of companies they could call to help with the cleanup of the oil. We're talking about one specific one where they could get the equipment to help with the cleanup. There was a website listed on the plan, listed as their website. When the spill started, not only was that website not for the company they said it was, it also had gone defunct from the company that had the website after the company they said they could get the equipment from had gone defunct so it had been the website for the company with all the equipment and then it had moved to a different company and that company had also gone out of business that other company a japanese entertainment company basically bp had an oil spill plan That oil spill plan was a complete joke that was approved by the United States government because they clearly had not read in any of it or even done any referencing on it at all. They just wanted the plan so they could say they had it. But that doesn't mean BP did nothing. Well, okay, they did nothing, but that's partially because the only response they had was to drill a relief well to stop the other well. There was no other option for a spill like this that had ever been developed. Like, it wasn't just that they did nothing, there was nothing else they could do. But, to their credit, BP basically opened their wallet to do whatever needed to be done to stop the flow of oil. One worker stated, quote, Whatever you needed, you got it. If you needed something from a machine shop and you couldn't jump in line, you bought the machine shop. But not everyone was pleased by the choice to open the checkbook to literally anything. CEO Tony Hayward apparently asked board members, quote, what the hell did we do to deserve this? Well, Tony, you skimped on a ton of things and rushed a massive project and made safety not a priority, so now you get to lie in the bet you made and spend a whole bunch of money. Oh, and just remember, those wells they are drilling to plug the other well will eventually be refitted to produce oil for profit. Just saying, don't complain. And just so you know that I'm not picking on Tony Hayward here, he also said... And this is a direct quote. We're sorry for the massive disruption it's caused in their lives. There's no one who wants this over more than I do. I would like my life back. The dude basically spent the whole time after this disaster complaining that they were going to be held responsible for it. Which, you know, seems like the right thing to do considering they are in fact responsible for it. But what are you going to do? And, I mean, technically, this doesn't just fall on BP. I mean, it does, but they get to shoulder some of the blame with what at the time was called MMS, the Minerals Management Service, the government agency that was supposed to be doing all the approvals and basically running the show with Deepwater Drilling. They were shockingly, woefully underfunded. They were underprepared, and they were undertrained. They did not have the expertise required to respond to this disaster in any meaningful capacity. When the maximum amount of people who responded to this disaster was about 45,000 people in total and the agency solely tasked with understanding and responding to underwater drilling incidents accounts for four or five of those people, not four or five hundred, not 40 or 50, literally four or five of 45,000, there is a problem. Hell. When the MMS workers were asked what they would do if given entire control over the whole operation, they said they would just immediately hire BP, or some other oil company, to do it. This does not inspire confidence, considering BP also had no options that would not take months. Meanwhile, 5-10,000 to 10,000 barrels of oil a day are leaking into the ocean. And we also need to put some of the blame on Transocean, who was the one who owned the rig and had the people trained the people that were drilling. BP was rushing people. BP did not allow people to do the proper safety procedures. Transocean trained their people who were not doing the proper safety procedures and were skipping on tasks and things like that. And also, we can't forget Halliburton, who um, neglected to tell BP that the cement had failed three times and that the next cement test would not be done before they actually poured the cement into the hole, So they also get some of the blame for this since their cement is the one that's supposed to keep the oil underground and it very obviously failed. So there's a whole lot of blame to go around for this, but uh, I'm going to put a lot of the blame on BP because they're the ones running the show. They're the ones rushing everyone. They're the ones that are skipping the time out to make sure all of these repairs are done, to make sure all this maintenance is done. They get a lot of the blame here. So, things in the Gulf were obviously going poorly, and so the U.S. upgraded their response to a spill of national significance, basically stepped up the amount of cooperation, and allowed them to announce Admiral Thad Allen as the National Incident Commander. Now, Admiral Thad Allen is a smart guy. He oversaw the response to both Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita, the actual competent response to Katrina, not the beginning response and literally put off retirement to help with this situation. This entire time, from the moment Deepwater Horizon sank beneath the waves on April 22nd until May 7th, 2010, BP and Transocean were trying to close the blowout preventer and stop the leak. They were entirely unsuccessful. They had major issues with actually doing anything. They took 10 days to realize the RAM they were trying to activate wasn't the right one at all. It was a test RAM that wouldn't close anything. Eventually, after they stopped trying to close it, they did imaging of the blowout preventer to see what the position of all the rams were. That indicated the blind shear ram had closed at least partially, but not enough to stop the flow of the oil. That means that the blowout preventer was dead. There was no way to use it to stop the flow of oil. They would have to move to a new tactic. The newest tactic was a giant dome. They would place the giant dome over one of the leaks and then use a pipe from the dome to pipe the leaking oil into a ship on the surface to then be ferried away. This dome was 14 feet wide, 24 feet long, and 40 feet tall. BP described the potential success of the dome as medium or high. Predictably, they were wrong. Experts were concerned that methane that was coming from the broken well would mix with the cold seawater and form hydrates that are basically ice that would then clog the pipe that was supposed to move the oil up into the boat. That is exactly what happened. They didn't even get the dome to the ocean floor before the pipe became clogged and the dome became full of oil, which is lighter than water, and made the 98-ton dome begin to float back up towards the surface. Thankfully, they were able to avoid it popping out of the ocean and smashing into the boat. They were using the lure, causing yet another disaster. But it also did not work and ended up on the seafloor containing absolutely nothing except maybe some very unlucky fish. But why did it fail so spectacularly? BP had planned for the ice. What they didn't plan for was being spectacularly wrong about how much oil was actually coming out of the leaks the government had publicly released an estimate of about 5,000 barrels per day. BP estimated that it could be no higher than 13,000 to 14,000 barrels per day. The actual amount being released? About 60,000 barrels per day. So let's just put that in perspective. 5,000 barrels is 210,000 gallons per day. An Olympic-sized swimming pool is 660,000 gallons. 14,000 barrels is 588,000 gallons. The actual flow of 60,000 barrels per day, this is what was actually coming out, the previous 588,000 gallons was what they thought the max was, the actual amount was 2.5 million gallons of oil every single day. That is basically three Olympic swimming pools every single day. That was not going to work. The next idea that was floated from several people, but primarily from a Russian newspaper, was basically drop a nuke on the well and hope that it seals it. BP and the U.S. government did not take this suggestion. They then deployed a tool called the riser insertion tube tool, which essentially did exactly that, and piped oil up to the ship on the surface it would collect about 22,000 barrels of oil in total over 9 days, which is helpful. That's 22,000 barrels that's not in the Gulf of Mexico. But not what they needed. They needed more. So at this point, we're still sitting at that public estimate of 5,000 barrels per day. That 60,000 barrel figure I gave you would not be arrived till at until later when, you know, things changed. There was a massive fight between BP, government scientists, and public scientists over what the actual flow rate was. At this point, all the public scientists were working with was the look of the oil on the surface of the Gulf. They had no idea what the underwater flow looked like. Up until BP released a 30-second video of the flow from the riser. Rapidly, non-government and non-BP scientists quickly put a range of 20,000 to 100,000 barrels leaking into the Gulf per day. These were soundly rejected by the BP and government scientists, despite the fact that they would soon prove to be correct. On May 19th, the National Incident Command, the people in charge of response, created a flow rate technical group which basically said, hey, figure out what this is flowing at. They released a range eight days later of 12,000 to 25,000 barrels per day. But they wouldn't explain how they got that then 2 days later they released a report saying that range was lower the lower bound estimate and that they were not going to release the upper bound estimate because of unknown unknowns like that is a direct quote they we will not release the upper bound estimate because of quote unknown unknowns aka these numbers are too big to contend with and we don't want to release them because it makes the problem seem way bigger and way scarier also just so we're On the same page, Unknown Unknown Unknowns is a great band name. So, our next step is to obviously try and stop the flow of oil and gas again because we're going to have to do that. The next attempt was a junk shot and a top kill. A junk shot is literally when they pump random junk, literally random junk like golf balls and pieces of tires and knotted rope. Just imagine the kind of stuff the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club would use to rebuild a dam, and imagine it being pumped into an oil well to stop it. It's all being shoved down there to impede the flow of oil and gas because now everything is full. Then the top kill is pumping drilling mud down into the well to shove the oil and gas back down into the reservoir, and then sealing the well with concrete. BP and other engineers modeled how it would work based on different flow rates. One engineering group used The 5,000 barrel flow rate. BP used 15,000 barrel flow rate. Anything above 15,000 would mean that the top kill wouldn't work. There were multiple estimations on if this would work. All the internal discussions said there was a very, very, very small chance. That's not what CEO of BP told the public. Tony Hayward told them it would be 60-7% to likely to work. They attempted the top kill and junk shot on May 26th. It failed. They tried again on May 27th. It failed. And then they tried again on May 28th, and third time's a charm, right? No, it also failed. And after that, they gave up on that idea. The next plan was to install a way to pump more oil into waiting boats for transport out. This would work for a bit, but was not nearly enough to contain all the oil flowing out. So they came up with a new plan, which was called a capping stack. The capping stack was essentially a smaller blow-up preventer that they would lower down onto the top of the blow-up preventer that was sitting there not doing its job, and then they were going to seal the well. But there were just a couple worries. First of all, before we get into this, by this point in the well-sealing saga, the government had basically taken over most of the direction. BP had tried and failed numerous times to seal the well, and someone else was going to try now. This did not sit well with BP because the government engineers viewed risk differently than they did and they were taking into account more risk factors that BP did not agree needed to be examined. BP regularly claimed to be experts at managing risk and that they should not be second-guessed. From my perspective, it appears BP is an expert at managing risk right into blowing up an entire oil rig and spilling 60,000 barrels of oil per day into the Gulf of Mexico and killing 11 workers. So... Like, maybe they should sit down and shut up for a while. But the other thing that really irritated BP was the government workers who were now running the show had taken to calling other major oil companies and asking what they would do in the situation. Obviously, this was not a thing that BP wanted to have done, considering this was a major black spot (laughs) on their record, and having, say, ExxonMobil come in and figure out how to stop their gigantic oil spill would be a massive PR hit to BP. But the government workers did not care, and I can't blame them. It's always better to have more experts on the job and on the opinion. So the two original worries were that the inside of the well was compromised, and if they closed the well shut, it would push the oil into the surrounding rock formations, and then they would have several giant leaks coming from all around the area out of the ground, which would be essentially impossible to stop. And then the second worry was another blowout could occur further down into the well, turn the top sand layer into essentially a liquid, and the entire blowout preventer and capping stack and all of that would disappear into the ground, followed by a massive rush of oil and gas that would be also nearly impossible to stop. So some legitimate worries. BP obviously thought these worries were pointless, but we don't care what their opinion was. Their time had passed to fix this problem that they created. So they delayed the test 24 hours and did some more testing outside and some more figuring out of whether or not this would work. Then they went ahead and closed the capping stack at precisely 2.25 p.m. on July 15th, 2010. For the first time in 87 days, there was no oil flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. And then they waited. They waited to see if they had a bigger problem or if this was going to work. Many argued to open the well back up because the pressures looked bad. But one dude, armed with a single photograph of the initial pressure readings of the shut-in well, was able to accurately predict what the rest of the test would be like and that it would hold with no underground blowout. He worked overnight and then presented to everyone next morning. And he was correct. The capping stack would hold. BP would then start what is called a static kill basically the same as a top kill, just easier since the oil wasn't actively flowing out. They started that on August 3rd. Then they pumped in cement to seal it, and on August 8th, it was announced it was holding. Then, on September 19th, the relief well finally hit the blown-out well and was sealed with cement. Admiral Allen announced the Macondo 252 well is effectively dead. It took 152 days and millions of gallons of leaked oil into the Gulf of Mexico, but they sealed it. In the end, an estimated 3.19 million barrels of oil leaked into the Gulf. That is 130 million gallons. It's impossible to put that into perspective that is easy to understand. It was catastrophic. It was the largest oil spill in history. There were numerous systems put into place to control and contain the flow and spread of the oil before it reached the shoreline. Some of it was burned, some of it was skimmed, some naturally dispersed, and some dispersed using this person. Unfortunately, not all of it worked. Some of that oil inevitably made it to the shore. Now, there is a whole host of things that happened in this response, because there's Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi... Alabama, and Florida, all vying for response from the federal government to help prevent this oil get to their beaches. And a lot of these ways that they're dealing with this oil that's spreading out is not super visible to the people on land. And one of the things you have to understand about response to disasters is people like when it looks like things are doing something. So... One of the things that's uh, been very popular in oil uh, spill response are booms. They're the bright orange things you see floating on the surface of the ocean. They're super visible in all places. They don't do a lot in the ocean. They don't work very well. But the public can see them. They may not be doing anything, but the public can see them. So... For a long time during this response, there were literal fights over the Coast Guard putting up booms around the coast to protect the shoreline because the people there didn't know that they weren't working and no matter how many times the Coast Guard told them that they weren't working, they wanted booms put there because they could very clearly see it. There were numerous reports throughout this whole time of mayors of towns and of parishes and all that kind of stuff, threatening the coast guard for taking away their booms or moving the boom somewhere else. Or they would go to nearby towns, see that their coastline had more boom and then demand more boom sent to their area. I have said boom a lot, but I need to get you the point across that these booms did nothing. I mean, they did something, but not much. It wasn't worth all of the pressure and it cost a lot of money to put that boom out, and it wasted a lot of man time because the Coast Guard has to go out, and they have to send people that could be skimming oil off or con- having controlled burns of the oil off or spreading dispersant or whatever, putting out this boom that's doing nothing. So that was one of the big things because you can't see people skimming oil. You're not burning oil close to the shoreline. The dispersant's hard to see. And it's also super bad for the environment, so they were trying to use less of that. They had to get special EPA permission to actually use the dispersant because it's also super bad for, you know, people and animals and plants and all of that. So they wanted something that they could see that it looked like the Coast Guard was actually doing something. So they got these booms, and it wasn't them actually doing anything. It was just a huge waste of time now obviously much of the oil actually made it to the shore in the form of tar balls and just full-on oil slick all up and down the coast and that had some serious impacts the area that the spill occurred in is one of the most diverse areas in the world hosting at least 1200 different species of fish 1500 species of mollusks 1500 species of crustaceans Four species of turtle and about 30 different marine mammals, as well as over 200 species of birds. Now, there are multiple ways that an oil spill can impact wildlife. They can confuse globs of oil as food and ingest it, which is not good. They can become trapped in it, unable to breathe or swim away. And they can inhale small amounts of it, causing lung damage and other health problems. So let's start with one of the big impacts that we saw, the impact on sea turtles. They can obviously inhale and eat the oil on accident. It can also trap them where they cannot swim, exposing them to extreme temperatures. It's estimated that somewhere between 95 and 200,000 sea turtles were killed as a result of the spill and cleanup activities, because cleaning up the oil also causes problems. They have to disturb nesting locations to remove the oil. This can cause major problems in the nesting cycles of turtles, and disturb turtles that have already nested, killing the eggs and not allowing them to live. This spill also impacted dolphins, who have many of the same issues as sea turtles. Many dolphins that encountered the oil died, and those that didn't would go on to have major health impacts and pregnancy problems. It's estimated the dolphin population in the Gulf was halved. Birds also had a similar impact. Oiled birds can become trapped in the water and drown, as the oil makes it increasingly difficult for them to fly. It's been estimated some 100,000 birds died in the aftermath of the spill. Now, the next part we get to is very difficult to quantify, invertebrates, plants, and fish. By nature, most of these three are underwater and difficult to track, but oil and methane are toxic to all of the above. The loss to coral reefs and plants along the shoreline is completely incalculable. But fish is of particular difficulties. You see, during the height of the spill, fisheries in the Gulf were completely shut down over an area of about 88,500 square miles. This is where the wildlife impact intersects with the human impact. Now, a lot of these fish had heart problems and were breathing in oil through their gills and it was killing them. But how this impacts the humans, all of these fisheries being shut down caused massive economic tolls across several U.S. states as fishermen who relied on those areas to provide their livelihood just couldn't work. They were provided opportunities to work with BP in skimming up the oil as it came towards the shore, but that program was poorly run and people regularly received late payments or no payments at all and it was nothing compared to the payments they would get if they were actually fishing. And even if they could go out fishing, there's no telling if they would actually pull up fish that was, A, safe for consumption, or that they would actually pull up any fish at all because they had died. And then on top of that, there was a huge belief throughout the whole United States that any seafood pulled out of the Gulf would be unsafe for consumption, and they weren't going to buy it. The Gulf of Mexico provides seventy-five percent or so of the country's shrimp supply. Total U.S. seafood is about a third of it is from the Gulf of Mexico. So seventy-five percent of it is shrimp. A third of all seafood production in the United States is from the Gulf of Mexico. This was a huge disruption to not just the Gulf, but the entire country, and not just people bringing the fish in, but the workers packaging and processing all that seafood, and all of that. All of their families, when they don't have work to bring in, they're having issues at home, stuff like that. But it wasn't just the oil that people were afraid of being toxic. The dispersant used to get rid of the oil was also toxic and concerned people to be eating the seafood, worried that they are eating seafood that had consumed the dispersant and the oil, which makes it even more difficult to get people and convince them that it's safe to eat the seafood. And it is safe to eat the seafood in the Gulf of Mexico. Like, you don't have to worry about any of this. You can go and eat your shrimp and your tuna and whatever else you want to eat out of the Gulf of Mexico. It is fun. Anyway, that brings us to our next major impact, tourism. It's no secret that the Gulf of Mexico has some of the most beautiful beaches anywhere in the United States. Millions upon millions of people travel to various beaches all up and down the Gulf Coast. All of that tourism money dried up in the aftermath of the spill. Tourists were worried about how the beach would look and stopped coming. They were worried swimming in the Gulf would cause them to get sick from the oil and the dispersant, so they stopped coming. Tourism and fishing are the Gulf state's two main sources of income. Without them, all of those states are going to struggle to do anything. And then on top of all of this, there was a moratorium placed on all offshore drilling. Basically, they shut down all offshore drilling anywhere around the United States to try and figure out how they could prevent this from happening again. And it basically was like that for several months where there was absolutely no oil drilling in the ocean whatsoever. And that also caused a major financial strain on the Gulf Coast states and also several other states, Alaska and California and often the Atlantic. And this leads to even more human impact because of the loss of all of that work, the loss of all of that money, makes it way more difficult for people to feed and clothe and house their families, which takes a significant mental toll on all those people. Even if they never were impacted by the oil spill, the constant stress of is today the day the oil is going to show up on my beach and I can't, you know, rent out my rental house or you know, the people aren't going to come to my hotel and stay, so I'm going to have to lay off workers. Or I'm a worker in that hotel, and I'm no one's coming, so I have no rooms to clean, so they're going to lay me off. I'm a fisherman who relies on selling fish. I can't go out and fish. I'm barely getting paid by BP to skim this oil. What am I going to do to feed my family, keep my house, keep my kids warm and clothed and all of that? That is a huge mental strain, that can't be quantified. And then there were the literal health effects. So many workers reported as they were cleaning up the oil. That they suffered from headaches. From dizziness. From nausea. From things like that. And many of them reported that BP threatened to fire them. From their skimming jobs that they were barely getting paid for. For wearing masks to help clean up the oil. To prevent health issues. Basically this was a huge. Hugely impactful disaster that we're still learning the effects of to this day. Like It still is not done with. We are still trying to exactly quantify and understand the impact to the environment underneath the Gulf of Mexico. We're still trying to understand the impact to the people who live in those Gulf states. To the industries that live in those Gulf states. This is something that's going to be continuously studied for the next it's going to be 20, 30 years before we have a real good understanding of just how much all of that oil leaking into the Gulf of Mexico truly impacted the Gulf of Mexico itself. In the aftermath of the disaster, several things occurred, primarily the institution expansion of oil spill protections and responses. Capping stacks are fairly common now. The Minerals Management Service was completely disbanded, and replaced with the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and the Office of Natural Resources Revenue. In the end, BP would settle a criminal litigation lawsuit with the Department of Justice and plead guilty to 14 crimes violating several environmental impact laws and would pay a fine of $4.5 billion, which was the largest criminal fine at the time. Transocean would plead guilty to violating the Clean Water Act and pay $1.4 billion in fines. And Halliburton pleaded guilty to destruction of evidence and paid $200,000 and three years probation. Then BP settled another lawsuit, this one was civil, with the Department of Justice, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and Florida, in which they agreed to pay a whopping $18.7 billion. This is on top of BP paying for all cleanup costs, every single bit of it. So in total, for everything that they were forced to pay, BP ended up paying $54 billion. Now, for legal trouble for actual employees, two BP employees were charged with obstruction of justice for deleting messages related to the flow rate of the oil and that the top kill was unlikely to work. Two more BP employees were charged with manslaughter in regards to their supervision of safety tests, and one BP employee was charged with obstructing Congress for lying about the leaking oil flow rate. None received any jail time. One Halliburton employee was charged with destruction of evidence for telling two employees to delete information regarding the cement attempt before the blowout. He would receive probation. The Deepwater Horizon disaster has had far-reaching consequences that we still do not fully understand to this day, but it did spur better oversight and safety in a field that had been severely lacking it for some time and had almost no regulations. This disaster is one of the biggest disasters in recent history and will have far-reaching impacts in numerous fields and numerous industries for a very long time. It also will have future impacts on if something like this ever happens again, indicating that these companies can and will be held liable for the disasters that they caused. Because $54 billion is a lot of money. BP basically had to open checkbook and just continuously pay for a thing that they absolutely 100% caused themselves through their desire to make as much money as possible while spending as little money as possible and that should be the point that other companies should realize in your quest to spend as little money as possible you may end up paying a whole bunch more because if they had just you know taken what three weeks to pay to fix the blowout preventer and to fix all of the problems that they knew were there, they wouldn't have had to pay $54 billion. Also, if they hadn't been rushing everyone to get it done, Halliburton may have actually done the cement testing properly and come up with a cement mixture that would actually work for the well. Instead, they all lost a whole lot of money And 11 people were killed because of them and their incompetence and their desire to make as much money as possible for as cheap as possible. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, history spelled H-S-T-R-Y, so no vowels, Disastrous spelled correctly. You can also follow me on TikTok, Disastrous History spelled correctly. I also have a website where all of the... uh, Scripts are uploaded with sources and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's disastroushistory.com. And I have a Patreon, which, you know, has various different tiers, and I do some bonus content there related to fires and some smaller disasters that are just too small for full length episodes. As always, I thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate you all. Remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries.